Our need to stand still in a world filled with chaos and uncertainty has never been more important. You are invited to take this moment to wrap your heart and mind in narratives from the Hebrew scriptures, connect to its deep guidance, and move toward practices for encountering the presence of God in your life. Thanks for listening today to the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bruff. The following recording is part of a series called Be Still and Behold, 10 Weeks Exploring God's Presence in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was recorded in Winnipeg, Canada, for Prairie Presbyterian Church, where I am the pastor. Today is part nine, running away from God's presence. We acknowledge that we are gathered on Treaty One land, first entrusted by Creator God to the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, the homeland of the Red River Metis. Where can I go? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? Where can I flee from your presence? O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And night wraps itself around me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Where can I go? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? Where can I flee from your presence? Bye.
we're taking a deep dive into the story of Jonah. And in fact, Matt and I are going to read the entire book of Jonah to you. My confession today, before we even begin, is that every time I read this story of Jonah, I'm reminded of the VeggieTales version, and I hear these little vegetables singing to me. And actually, upon reflection, I don't think that's a bad thing. <laughs> Laughter's good. And really, this is quite the story. So as we come before God in prayer, I invite you to come at confession with a lighter heart than we sometimes do. God is in all things, including our laughter. Let us pray. God of all creation, we come before you this morning knowing that we are not perfect people, that we struggle, we face challenges, and when this happens, we sometimes turn our backs on you. While most of us haven't run quite as far as Jonah, we've all run from something. And while I'm fairly sure, fairly confident here, none of us have been swallowed by a whale. At times we feel that way. That in our running, we hit such a wall and we feel like we've been chewed up and spit back up. And then a lot of times we do it again. Lord, forgive us for all the times we've run. Forgive us for the times we've deliberately made the same bad choices over and over again. Forgive us the times when we knowingly turn away. And forgive us the times when we think we know best. In your wisdom, guide us back to you. Give us a fresh start and send us out once more to do your work. Amen. Friends, hear the good news. There is literally nowhere you can run from God's presence. There is nothing you can do which will cause God to leave you. And there is no sin too great for God's forgiveness. Know today that you are forgiven and be at peace. And may the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And as we share a sign of peace with one another today, I invite you to consider the depth and breadth of this ritual, one of many in the church, and the deep significance of sharing the peace of Christ with one another. So today, I encourage you to reach out to someone in your life, those around you, and be reminded of the peace of Christ, not just with you, but with the person you share it with. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord." But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, "'What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God.' Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. 
The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out onto the dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal... No herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? I've heard this a number of times in my life. Something that kind of sounds a bit like this. I can be a good person without going to church or without God. And really, it's all about people just being kind to each other. We just all need to be kind to each other. I kind of don't need God to tell me that. I'm a kind person. And if we... If we just did that, we'd all be fine. But let me ask you, how is that working out for us as a whole when we look at the world, at society? Just think about the last few years. Remember the start of the pandemic? Uh, remember uh, people talking about, we're all in this together. Uh, there were even concerts that uh, came on uh, TV and uh, different streaming services where performers set up, you know, performance spaces in their homes and recorded and, you know, said, oh, we're, let's all pull together. You know, people were going out on their balconies and, and making noise uh, with, you know, banging on pots and cheering for their healthcare workers and making signs for teachers. Um, there was a good dose of kindness as we pulled together when we had a common enemy called COVID-19. <laughs> And then it all wore us down, didn't it? (laughs) We ended up with, I think, a more deeply divided society. We argued about vaccines and about public health policy. We had protests in Ottawa, Canadians protesting about this. And and this this is just the pandemic I'm talking about. In the same time period, there've still been shootings, violence perpetrated because of race or religion, more and more unmarked graves at former residential schools, 
very little action by government on the national inquiry on murder and missing indigenous women and girls. And that's just the last couple of years. Uh, I just got back recently from uh, holidays and part of my holidays, I was in Washington, DC. Uh, if you want like just crash courses in American history, Washington, DC is a great vacation. Uh, we had a lot of fun and we learned a ton. Um, and we got to see, uh, a whole bunch of things. One of the things I, I went into the National Archives and just got a little glimpse of the Declaration of Independence, which we all got to hear about. And, um, and of course, we know that the opening line of that, even in Canada, we know that opening line. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And we also all know that they didn't originally mean all men. And they certainly didn't mean women. Uh, the words, of course, were penned by Thomas Jefferson, who I learned on this trip, and maybe some of you know this, he owned more than 500 African-American slaves. And he wrote those words about all men being created equal. Uh, we visited the, the Jefferson Memorial. It's, it's really beautiful. And it's, um, it's across a small body of water called the, the Tidal Basin. Across from it, is a newer memorial that's the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. And um, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, he doesn't look too happy uh, in, his, in his big statue, a big statue, and he looks right across the bay at the Jefferson Memorial. And that's done on purpose, right, to say what Jefferson was doing with owning slaves is wrong. And uh, so it's quite fascinating to see how they've set that up uh, to do that. Uh, it's interesting when the founding fathers of the United States spoke of freedom and equality, they weren't thinking about things like slavery. They were thinking about freedom from the British crown. There should be no king or queen over them. That's what they were talking about. Uh, independence in the U.S. happened in 1776, and it's interesting to note that the Slavery Abolition Act in the United Kingdom in England was in 1833. It took another 30 years or so after that before slavery was abolished in the United States. Um, I also visited the uh, Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's a newer museum, and it's well worth the visit. Uh, it takes you through the history of the African American people in the U.S., starting uh, somewhere in the 1500s. And you start on the lower level, and it is dark in that lower level, and you learn about the beginnings of the slave trade. And as you work your way up, you get uh, to, to places where natural light is coming into the museum. And you start to learn about um, civil rights in the 1960s and kind of moving in towards uh, more current things. The thing that struck me the most was the quiet in the lower levels. Nobody was speaking. Lots of children there. Nobody was speaking just reading and taking it in and taking in the horror of what happened to an entire group of people. 
It actually reminded me of about 25 years ago, I visited the Auschwitz concentration camp in Poland and got to see the museum there, but also um, the places where people slept and even destroyed gas chambers and things like that. And one of the striking things there is the quiet. No one's speaking, just taking it in because how, how can you even speak? How can you even know what to say? in the face of such evil and horror. So when I think of these things, and I think about folks who say, oh, we just need to be kind. It's a nice idea. It's a nice idea. But it doesn't seem to be working out so well all the time. And the thing is, the hard thing for us who are people who might be in the church is that the church is actually not exempt from terrors or horrors that we describe. You know, some people stay away from the church because they say it's irrelevant or it really makes no difference to their lives or God just doesn't really seem to matter at all. I can just be a good person on my own. I don't don't need God or the church. But others keep away from the church because they have seen or experienced hate or hurt within or by the church itself. See, people have used the church, its position and its power to legitimate or perpetrate hate, violence, abuse, segregation, white supremacy, homophobia, misogyny, cultural assimilation and destruction and colonialism. The church has actually been used to legitimate all those things and even to enact them. Now, these things are all embedded in culture as well. It's not just in the church, obviously. And they're really difficult to address. But the thing is, in in church, none of those things should even exist. But they do. And there are churches where some of these things are essentially still taught, sometimes implicitly and sometimes explicitly. So it's complicated It's more complicated than let's all just be kind to one another. There are surely plenty of people who want no part of an organization that says they believe in a God of love, but their behaviors aren't loving. If you look at news stories that involve churches and their role in running running residential schools, and then you read about abuse scandals in the church, including Recent revelations from the Christian school in Saskatoon, where staff performed exorcisms on a student because he came out as gay. This is abhorrent. But if you just use these stories as your measure for the church and for Christianity, you would be perfectly reasonable to conclude that God, if there is one, is not loving and that church is harming society. That would be a reasonable conclusion if that's the only measure you used are those stories. Now, why am I saying any of this? It's only to say that brokenness is deep and it is everywhere. The church is not exempt and secular society is not exempt from brokenness. I understand why people will criticize the church, but it isn't as though the world at large has better answers. It's all kind of a mess, isn't it? And we probably... I think we need spaces that will actually admit that it's all a mess. 
We have a problem when the church doesn't admit it. When the church decides that, well, we aren't a mess here in the church, but out there in society, they're a mess. See, because that easily becomes a kind of cult where we keep the pure people in here and we don't mix with those people out there. Today, we actually read the entire book of Jonah. It's not long. It's, it's four short chapters. And Jonah, I think, Jonah knows the score in a way. Jonah is mostly, for the most part, honest. God tells Jonah, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Right? This is about an evil city, a place where there is wickedness and brokenness. And God says to Jonah, go there and cry out against it. And what does Jonah do? Jonah says, in no way, and heads in the opposite direction. And we don't immediately know why Jonah doesn't want this particular job. I mean, it doesn't sound like a great job, but we don't really know why Jonah doesn't want to do it. Instead, he gets on a ship that's going to a place called Tarshish, and we are told that he's going on that ship away from the presence of the Lord, it says. Jonah doesn't want to be in God's presence. And we don't totally know why at first. And that's when the famous storm happens and everyone panics and Jonah is eventually thrown overboard because they all believe that, that him running away has, has caused God to send the storm. And it actually turns out they're right about that. Uh, the storm does calm and then God provides a very large fish to swallow Jonah. We know the, the Sunday school story. And actually the, the fish is God's way of saving and protecting Jonah. He's in the fish for three days and three nights. And uh, we should hear echoes as well. If you remember to last week, uh, we had 40 days and 40 nights of a walk. And, you know, that's, that's pretty important uh, numbers there of when we think of Jesus' life, where he starts his ministry, 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. And now we have three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, almost like you're dead, waiting to, to come out and be reborn the three days and three nights of Jesus in the tomb. While Jonah is in the fish, though, he prays a prayer. It's a pretty amazing prayer, actually, when we read it or when you listen to it, or if you want to go read it again. It's quite an amazing prayer that he does. And in that prayer, he recommits himself to God. And the fish throws him up, vomits him up onto the land, And he's on the land again, and God tells him to go to Nineveh again. Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message I tell you, God says. And this time, Jonah goes. And we don't really know, you know, is Jonah, because he's recommitted, is he excited this time? Or is he maybe just resigned to his reality of being a reluctant prophet? I guess I have to. Like, there's nothing I can do. We don't really know. Anyway, he goes to the city. He goes into the city. And he preaches the shortest, most effective sermon ever preached in history. We read this. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his entire sermon. And then we read, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. In other words, it works. Jonah has gone to the great city where those people are wicked 
And in Jonah's view, and in God's own words, this city is wicked. They're bad. Now, we could also get into what they might have done or what they might have been doing that was so bad, but that's actually not the point. Um, when I walked through the African American History Museum or when I walked through the Auschwitz concentration camp or when I visited with indigenous brothers and sisters and hear about their ongoing struggle with the effects of generational trauma or when we read about a, a racially motivated shooting or an exorcism performed on a student that has shared about their sexuality. I'm not thinking about, well, if we were all just kinder to each other, we should just be kind. Actually, I'm thinking about justice. There should be accountability. There needs to be learning from our mistakes. There needs to be empathy and compassion for victims. There needs to be some kind of reparation for wrongs committed and for harm done. That's what I'm thinking about. See, Jonah goes into the city and he pronounces a sentence on the city. In 40 days, Nineveh is done and justice is going to be paid. And the people actually repent. In response to the message, they set up a public display of confession. That's what the putting on of sackcloth is in that time. We're going to confess. We're sorry for what we've done, whatever it was. They've set up a public display of their own sorrow at their own wickedness. And they have a public display of a resolution to change. And then we read, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them. And in chapter 4, after that statement, Jonah goes nuts. Because he thinks he looks like a fool. And we find out why Jonah never wanted to go to Nineveh in the first place. We read this. This was all very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. See, Jonah knows the real score. Jonah knows who God really is. Gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And the thing is, Jonah doesn't like it. Jonah wants Nineveh to get what they deserve. He knew that if he went there on behalf of God, it was, it was like giving Nineveh a second chance. And and Jonah would just prefer for those people who we all know are bad people to be taken out. And so Jonah ran from the presence of God because he actually wants a different God. He would prefer a God of vengeance. And instead, he's got a God of compassion, even for the wicked. And that is actually hard for all of us. You know, going to church is actually hard because this isn't about letting people off the hook for misdeeds, right? The, the people of Nineveh are actually called to account. They do repent. They publicly say, we know we've got work to do and we are committing ourselves to do it. And Jonah would rather have it easier than that 
I think he'd rather just say, look, I'm a good person. If there's a God, God should just stop bad things from happening. Why does God let bad things happen anyway? If there is a God, God should just make justice happen. I don't want to worry about that. I just want to be my good person over here. If I was God, I'd just obliterate or ignore the wicked people, and we'd all just be kind to one another, and it would all be fine. We really don't need places where people make public signs of repentance, admit that they were wrong, and commit to working through to something better when it's really difficult, and at the same time, live into receiving this surprising, abiding compassion and grace from a source beyond ourselves. That's actually what the church is. But that's hard. See, Jonah knows who God is, but he doesn't really want God to be God for, for those people And he doesn't really want God to hold him to account. Don't be a God of compassion for those evil people over there. And don't be a God of justice to me. That's kind of what we all want. We want God to be a God of justice for them. And God to be a God of grace for me. Jonah despairs so much at a God whose compassion and grace goes beyond his own imagining for others that he then says, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> God's response is, is it right for you to be angry? <laughs> That's great. I love that response. Is it really right for you to be angry? <laughs> we're, supposed to, we're supposed to always say, you know what, if that's how you feel, like voice your anger and, and it's, you know, you can't be wrong with your feelings. <laughs> God just says, you don't have any right to be angry about this. Jonah then sits outside the city. We read, to see what would become of it. I imagine Jonah sitting outside the city kind of with his arms folded and thinking, maybe the repentance won't take. Let's watch for a slip up. And if that's what he's doing, what is Jonah becoming? Waiting for a possible witch hunt? It's hot out while Jonah's waiting for maybe the people to do something wrong, take a step out of line so that he can say, look, yeah, you should destroy them. It's hot out. And God makes a little bush to grow up and provide shade for Jonah. And Jonah's really happy about the bush because he wants to get out of the heat, heat. And it's sort of a weird part of the story. Jonah just sitting outside the city being happy about some shade. What is going on at the end of this story? Jonah used to know who God was. And does he still? Jonah, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful that I have shelter. God is blessing me. Look at this bush that he's provided for me. Hashtag blessed. Isn't it great? I'm happy now. But I'm still keeping my eye on them over there. It's not going to last. They're going to slip up. And then God causes the bush that he provided to wither and a hot wind to blow and the sun to scorch. And Jonah becomes miserable again. And he gets angry and says, my life is terrible. It would be better if I was dead. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah says, yes. Angry enough to die. It's supposed to 
kind of be funny. Like, it's okay if you think this is sort of funny. Because it is. Really, Jonah? You're angry enough to die about a bush that just grew up to give you some shade and now it's shriveled. Just go home. But the Lord says, You're concerned about the bush. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons and also many animals? In other words, you would have me just wipe out 120,000 people because you think they're bad. And you're concerned about the bush shriveling? And that's how the book of Jonah ends. And that's how we're going to end as well. Amen. I once again invite you, as I did last week, to think about how you might connect with God through starting a new ritual or habit or renewing something that you've done in the past. Uh, last week I mentioned um, prayer walking for me and also reading the Psalms. This is one of those strange stories and One of the things that we do each week is we have a prayer of confession. And a big part of that is because we're acknowledging the brokenness and the wickedness that is in the world and in us and in the church. So maybe even your practice this week is to engage in confession and repentance. What is it that you want to bring before God that you want to have turned around in your life for good, for the sake of others? Where is it that you need to have new eyes to see people with compassion and empathy in this coming week. So I invite you into that, into some ritual or habit that allows you to continue to connect with God's presence this week, to not run away as Jonah did, but to enter fully into the presence of the God who is the God of justice and the God of love. Although here in Manitoba, school doesn't start until after the long weekend, In many places, school has already begun or is beginning. And so today, we take time to pray for students, teachers, parents, school staff, as we start in on another year, hopefully less uncertain than others, but still new. Let us pray. God, our creator and greatest teacher, we thank you that you have given us minds to learn to create, and to grow. And as we move into the start of another school year, we ask that you be with all of those who are going back to school. Be with those parents sending their children to school for the very first time, and those who are blinking, wondering where the time went. We ask that you be with students of every age who are returning to classrooms, both online and in person, that you give them open minds to learn and the energy to fully participate. We ask that you be with those struggling for whom school is not a welcome change and so begins another period of challenge. And we ask that you be with those who wish more than anything that they could be in school and are not able to for whatever reason. We ask that you be with teachers, many of whom are exhausted and frustrated, We ask that you give them patience and strength and that they can find joy in their students and empower them to learn. And finally, God, 
We ask that you be with the many systems that have power to create challenges or support. We ask your justice to reign in all things. Amen. Thanks to Ashley Boychuk for her reading and singing of the psalm, Aaron Whitaker for her tireless work on the liturgy, Wes Keeley for all his technical wizardry and producing the original videos for the series. You can find the video version of Be Still and Behold on the YouTube channel for Prairie Presbyterian Church. Visit prairiechurch.ca to find out more and to get the accompanying PDF. I'm Matt Bruff, pastor at Prairie Presbyterian Church in Winnipeg and host of this, the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. 
Thanks for listening today. Take care.